The following podcast includes explicit language, not restricted to words beginning with F, S, B, and Q. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of August 3rd, 2020. On this week's show, we'll discuss the first week inside the NBA bubble and Major League Baseball's continued misadventures on the planet we call Earth. We'll also be joined by UCLA football players Otito Obonia and Elisha Guidry for a conversation about the We Are United movement, which athletes from the Pac-12 are threatening not to play if the conference doesn't listen to their demands for reform. Finally, we'll talk to our own Joel Anderson about his piece on Liberty University's attempt to become a sports powerhouse and why Black athletes have started leaving the school. I'm the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn Season 4. I'm recording myself on my phone in Washington, D.C. Joining me is D.C. legend Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Good get that, Joel Anderson. How'd you pull that off, Josh? He was available. Yeah, I've made myself free on Monday mornings every now and again. <laughs> Joel is with us from Palo Alto, California. It's, uh, it's a chore to get up on, uh, on Monday mornings, but Joel does it because he loves us. Uh, he's the host of Slow Burn Season 3 and the author of Slate's cover story this week. Hello, Joel. Hello. I just want to, before we move on, you said DC legend for Stefan. You didn't give me Palo Alto legend, but maybe I haven't been here long enough. So maybe I'm not a legend out here yet. No, you need to, you're already a Houston legend. You need to make your work for for Palo Alto. (laughs) But I have something before we move on. I hope that I'm going to be able to be the one to break this to you, Joel, because it just came out this morning. Big, big XFL news. Oh, okay. (laughs) Wow. Whoa. (laughs) What is that? You're tapping your sources again, Josh? (laughs) The XFL's assets were purchased by a group, including Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Whoa! Yes. All right. So now what? The XFL's fortunes have turned around. Nothing that The Rock does has ever failed. The Rock was involved in the original XFL. All right. Well, maybe that failed. But nothing else that The Rock has ever done has failed. This will be uh, the ultimate test of the XFL's penchant for extraordinary rapid failure. And The Rock's (laughs) just a box office gold. Yeah, I mean, this time I'm sure they'll announce it, and then you know, by the time they've left the dais, it'll it'll be a fold again. So he's got a <laughs> quite a record of a futility to match up to Rock. I'm sure you can meet it. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: the roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The NBA's reopening night on Thursday featured a pair of very good games, Jazz Pelicans and Lakers Clippers, both decided by two points. Only complaint, not enough Zion. 
Come on, Pelicans. The day after that, there were two overtime games. Blazers 140, Grizzlies 135, Rockets 153, Mavericks 149. It went on like that all weekend. Close and exciting basketball action featuring the NBA's best teams and most exciting players. And yes, some weird fake crowd noise, walls of virtual fans inside a bubble at Disney World. Look, it was it was weird, but it was good. Meanwhile, St. Louis Cardinals weekend series against the Milwaukee Brewers canceled as at least three Cardinals players have tested positive for the coronavirus. A bunch more cancellations also due to the coronavirus. An investigation by uh, baseball found that Marlins players went out on the town and congregated at their hotel bar before their own coronavirus outbreak. The players and the commissioner are now going back and forth about who's to blame for this virus-slathered and potentially virus-shortened season. Stefan, the simple storyline here is that NBA is going great and baseball is a disaster. And this is a case where the simple storyline also feels to me like an extremely accurate storyline. I don't know what you're talking about, Josh. Aaron Judge homered twice on Sunday night, fifth straight game in which he's homered. Did you see Mookie Betts' throw from the right field corner to third base? Baseball's fine. Baseball's back, baby. Baseball's back. I mean, you know, okay, Yoannis Cespedes and Lorenzo Cain opted out of the season over the weekend. The Marlins are a COVID ward unto themselves. Rob Manfred, the commissioner, threw the players under the bus over COVID protocol management. I only watched a little basketball, but apart from one weirdo player, Terrence Davis of the Raptors, who cut a hole in his mask, he thinks that we should be spending more time on uh, on nutrition. It looked like the NBA was, in fact, the... Uh, Doing pretty well. Wait, did you watch more MLB than NBA, Stefan? Is that how this worked out? It's possible that I did because the Yankees were on and it's always nice to sort of root yourself once in a while. It's probably about, it was probably about 50-50. Look, Joel, Stefan's from a different generation. (laughs) Yeah, basketball didn't exist when I was a child. Right. He still remembers the golden age of of baseball. Ask him about Reggie Jackson. I was going to say, Reggie Jackson. Yeah. I've heard of that guy. Did he play football or... (laughs) I think he was a running back. <laughs> He's a point guard for uh, the Clippers. That's right. Actually. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't watch much baseball, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I, but the way that I've kept up with the sport is through the headlines, which is uh, generally bad. I mean, and this is sort of what I wanted to ask you guys about, because beyond, you know, like the Mookie Betts throw, uh, maybe a few isolated moments, has anything baseball done uh, somehow beating out these bad coronavirus headlines? Like, to the extent that we've heard about baseball in the national conversation, has anything that's happened on the field made the concerns about their protocols and consequences for players that get infected? Has any of that stuff overshadowed any, like anything that happened on the field overshadowed anything like that, right? Like, I don't think so. The Aaron Judge homers were the only thing that I've seen that have really broken through right. and become... Not only just like a a kind of national story, but even like a sports story. Mm -hmm. It's like the only thing, if you're like on Twitter, that feels like the only thing that's broken through. People are like, wow, that was cool. Mm -hmm. Right. And like people were playing um, clips of just like the sound of the the crack of the bat when Judge hit the home run and how awesome that, that sounded. But, you know, I guess the only other kind of vaguely positive thing was people saying after the first few days, like, Actually, the extra inning rule where somebody is on second base is like not a total disaster and it seems kind of fun. Mm -hmm. But other than that, it's just really been like 
here's another 18 players that have tested positive for COVID. Here's the commissioner like botching this and passing the blame and there being like absolutely no kind of central organizing principles here. And I mean, baseball seems like, you know, the way that baseball is being run, it's like a microcosm of the United States government. It's like no responsibility is being taken. Mm -hmm. No kind of rules were implemented from on high. Everyone was basically set up to fail. And then when the inevitable failure happens, it's just blaming, (laughs) blaming the, the victims, essentially. I mean, the Marlins players are dumb for violating the protocols like that. They deserve, um, you know, it's some, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of blame, but it's not like the commissioner's office is taking any responsibility for anything that's gone on. No. And the, the way that Manfred has, is handling this is absurd, especially again, in contrast to a commissioner like Adam Silver. Manfred hasn't like had a news conference since February. Apparently he went on ESPN over the weekend and talked to Carl Ravitch And he said, quote, the players need to be better, but I am not a quitter in general, and there is no reason to quit now. We have to be fluid, but it is manageable. I mean, the guy has worked at Major League Baseball for more than 20 years. Um, He is the commissioner of the sport. Either he's getting terrible PR coaching, or he is so blind to the way his words are going to be interpreted that he's incompetent. I mean, his comments to Ravitch basically riled up the players. I mean, John Lester got pissed off. I don't want, I don't know Rob's situation and I don't want to put my foot in my mouth on that one, but I do know we, not only the players, but families are making sacrifices day in and day out. I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. I guess I'll stop there. Nobody is happy here and ignoring the, the management labor back and forth. So many players, coaches, managers are talking about one thing, their reluctance to be doing this. Dave Martinez, the manager of the Nationals, nearly broke down at his at his Zoom news conference, I think on Friday, talking about his own fears and concerns about playing through this. The guy had a heart condition diagnosed last season. Um, so it is totally overridden baseball. And by the way, Mookie Betts, who made that great throw, hurt his hand on Saturday on the next day. So, you know, whether he'll be playing or not, we don't even know. One of the management problems here, Joel, is that Major League Baseball developed this 100-plus page protocol manual, but it didn't say what should happen after an outbreak, which is why we've had so much chaos with games getting canceled, players being quarantined in hotels in, in on the road, and an uncertainty about what the next day, let alone the next week or two weeks or month, are going to hold. Yeah, and it, it just seems really irresponsible. Like, maybe, you know, to be fair to them, maybe MLB thought, well, if we have an outbreak, there's nothing we can really do anyway. There is no game plan for that. So we'll just deal with it as it comes. But that's not really good policy with something that could have long-term health effects for your employees, right? Like right now we're talking about Eduardo Rodriguez, the Boston Red Sox pitcher who is not going to play the rest of the season because he developed coronavirus earlier in the year and he, it led to an inflammation of his heart. And like, that's a long-term health consideration that he's going to be dealing with. And so essentially what the MLB is asking people to like, take that sort of a risk that, well, We'll see how it works out. If you get infected, we'll adjust the rules as they go along. But the thing is, along the way, you don't know who you're sacrificing in in, in trying to perfect your protocol. Um, and so I don't know, man. I just, 
I always go back to this, and I'm going to be the broken record because I say I'm a broken record every episode. But what <laughs> what is baseball doing? Like, why? Are they, like, is it is it worth it? Is it like I don't know that this is such thing as irreparable harm to a brand during these times, right? Because we're going to have to recover at some point. There will be some normalcy at some point in the country, in the sports, whatever, right? But the way that they're doing this now and the way that it's happening now, like I just cannot imagine that this is good for the MLB as a brand, as a company, for labor relations, anything else. Like I just don't, it just seems like maybe they should stop or maybe they should have never started in the first place, but maybe they should just stop. You're a quitter, Joel. Yeah, I, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm suspicious, man. I'm just packing my shit and leaving. You know what I mean? I just don't, who would make, why, why would anybody put, I, I could totally understand reading these headlines, looking at the news, seeing what other teams are going through and being like, what the hell are we doing here? They don't have a plan. So like, why would I put myself at risk? Why would I put my family at risk? And the thing well, is- The suspicious thing is really interesting because, I mean, he's had a really fraught mm-hmm. relationship with the team for years now, for- it would take uh, a whole episode to go through them all. But I think what we're going to see, and this is a connect connects, I think, with the NFL and the opt-outs we're seeing there, is like, okay, the Mets are three and seven now. Mm-hmm. As teams start to pile up losses, players are just going to quit. Like, why are you going to stay out there? I mean, sure, guys are going to want to collect their, their salary. So I don't think every player on every losing team is going to abandon ship. But I think this is not going to be the last player who's going to decide for health reasons, um, because they don't want to be apart from their families, because the show that baseball is running is so incompetent and inept that they're just going to abandon um, the sport. And I think it would look, I mean, I, I tend to agree with you, Joel, that people have pretty short memories with this stuff. So I think that, you know, the long-term damage to baseball's brand, I don't know how big of a concern that is, but I think it would probably be better for baseball if they're the ones that pull the plug and then it's not forced on them by every player quitting <laughs> the game. That would probably be a, a bad thing. And Josh, the players that are going to quit are not going to be the the lower guys that we've never heard of. They're going to be named players. I mean, the two players that opted out, you know, we're now two weeks into the season, were were, were good players. Giannis Espedes and Lorenzo Cain, these guys are are big name, big money players. They will have they have the luxury of opting out. And if you get three or four or five more all stars, starters, whoever, it's going to be hugely damaging to the season. It already is. If you look at the standings, and you know the Mets are three and seven, and the Marlins are two and one, and the Phillies are one and two. <laughs> Because they can't play games because <laughs> because of these coronavirus outbreaks, right. and I do think you mentioned the NFL, Josh. I do think that what's happening in baseball is being watched very, very closely by players in the NFL because they recognize that football, at least at this time, is trying to do it the same way, not isolate everybody in some sort of group bubble or even individual team bubbles, though I did see over the weekend that there was consideration that the NFL may try to sequester the entire organizations locally in hotels for the duration of the season. Um, So I think NFL players are looking at this going, this is my future, and reevaluating the number of NFL players that have opted out is already above 40. 
including eight members of the New England Patriots. And again, some first and second year guys that are concerned about health or have family reasons, but also players that you've heard of. Patrick Chung, Donta Hightower on the Patriots. Marcus Cannon, TCU alum. Yeah, Damian Williams on Kansas City. Nate Solder on the Giants. These are Devin Funchess on the Packers. These are players that you know, and the reasons vary a lot. A lot of them are linemen because linemen are overweight and tend to have underlying health conditions or risks for future health conditions. So you're seeing this attrition already and how the NFL is going to address that. I don't know. Yeah. Let's move to the NBA, which is the success story here. And I have a couple theories as to why. And I think the one that I've felt like has been a little bit kind of underexplored is the fact that this is what it looks like in a league with a deeper talent pool because it's been contracted. The eight worst teams in the NBA um, are not in the bubble in Orlando. And, you know, we've talked a bunch of times on this show about the issue of tanking in the NBA and in, and in other leagues. And whether it's explicit or not, um, you do have um, a bunch of games in all sports in the regular season that just don't matter. Um, and the teams are just kind of playing out this, the string and aren't trying. But also because of like, you know, the fact that we're getting games back to back to back, you have this feel in these in these games, like it feels like what basketball should be like. It's like the best players, only good games, only good teams. Playing a lot and making it easier for fans to watch. Yeah, and it's like Rob Perez tweeted this, just like, how do we make the normal season like this? It's just such an amazing contrast where every other sport is just like screwing up so badly and the NBA actually seems better. It's also interesting to me too, right? Because we talked a lot about player protest movement and like how much the games, would they or would they not overshadow the, the, the players' messaging off the court, right? And I feel like there's been a really good balance between both. That like we've been we've been able to talk about Black Lives Matter and, you know, the slogans on the back of players' jerseys. And we've been able to talk about how the players have looked and how the games have looked, and which have all been, you know, as far as I'm concerned, fairly high quality. I haven't watched every game, but they've all seemed to have been really entertaining and well-played games, which is a shock given that they took four months off. But it's just been a really good balance of both. That Like, they've balanced what's happening in the bubble with what's happening outside of the bubble and... I, it, it feels like the, possibly the best case scenario for any of the restarts that we've had thus far. But, I mean, I'll, we got to come back to the fact that, like, it's early, right? And we've already seen that Lou Williams, we talked about him briefly last week, you know, who was excused from the bubble to go to a family funeral. And then it was found out that he was at Magic City getting wings. And he said, hey, I'm just here getting wings. I'm just getting wings. And then a dancer from Magic City told the LA Times that, no, actually, I gave him a dance while he was there. It was a socially distant dance, though. Yeah, right. They didn't touch each other. That's fair. That's fair. But Just a brief interruption, Joel. But I think an incredibly telling contrast between baseball and NBA is like Lou Williams goes to Magic City with a mask on and is like instantly recognized and on Instagram. It's like the sixth man of the LA Clippers. Like the entire Florida Marlins franchise apparently is like going out on the town in Atlanta. Nobody reports on it. Nobody knows about it. They could have been wearing their full uniforms for all we know. Baseball um, players, they're just like you and me, Josh. Yeah. But continue, Joel. No, but it seems to me, though, that, you know, Lou Williams is sort of a, you know, he's been made an example, right, of, you know, sort of being irresponsible and not necessarily following in line with protocol. 
but it's early and we still are like, again, we are just kind of come back to this. Like these are still human beings. Like you just cannot predict what any one person is going to do and who might eventually get tired. I mean, they got that guy, Terrence Davis that you mentioned earlier, who has a hole in his mask. So who's to say that, you know, three weeks from now, we're not talking about somebody that we find out that they went on a bender in Orlando, which does have yeah. strip clubs, by the way, which does, which, you know, or just whatever, all these other entertainment options. Yeah. But, but Joel, hmm. like, if one person viol- like the NBA has such a strong system in place that if anybody breaks the protocol or if anybody gets the virus, they can do contact tracing. They can do all like it's not going to get as ba- as bad as it is in in baseball. Like oh. it might still be a bad idea. It might go south, but like the NBA like has a plan. Right. Well, it won't. And- it won't be like MLB. Right. That, that's true. But we don't know the ways in which it could look bad. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Because we, I mean, we still are figuring out the disease. We're still figuring out how the the bubble is going to work. It's just really early to declare it a success. Right. One lapse and it's the coronavirus. It can spread rapidly inside this closed society. There are no guarantees here. And the NBA, after Terrence Davis was walking around with the hole in his mask and telling people that uh, all they push are masks, social distancing, tests, and vaccines, nothing about vitamins, healthy foods, or sunshine, the game is rigged. (laughs) The NBA went out of its way to leak to Mark Stein of the New York Times that teams were notified to reemphasize the use of masks and to warn players that they were going to crack down. Yeah. Michael Porter Jr. of the Nuggets was also like spreading some yeah. conspiracy stuff, which is not great. Well, we, yeah. 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 Just imagine, again, just imagine somebody going out, coming back. They don't have to. I mean, do you really think that, that there's nobody that's penetrated the bubble that's not supposed to be there? The, the, you, the issue, you think everybody that's Joel, gotten the, in there? The issue isn't going to be one player because the players are being monitored like crazy. The issue is if a hotel worker, you know, there there are a bunch of people that are allowed to go in and leave every day. I don't know if it's dozens or hundreds, but it's like if one player does it, it seems like kind of blaming. No, wait, no, no, no. I'm not saying that it's a I'm not trying to say that, you know, put the burden on the players here or that like if if it all goes wrong that it's the player's fault. But all it takes is one player to breach the bubble, come into contact with his teammates, and then we have an outbreak. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just early. It just seems really early to say that this is absolutely a success. That's all I'm saying. Let's wrap it up by saying that the concentrated nature of this has helped magnify for the league the other message. You mentioned the Black Lives Matter stuff. These news conferences have been so targeted that athletes and coaches that have wanted to get a point across have been able to, and people are going to pay attention because everyone's watching. Jalen Brown talked about how Francis Scott Key owned slaves and mentioned this third verse of the Star Spangled Banner, also mentioning slavery. Greg Popovich was asked about Marco Bellinelli's status and went off on a long and thoughtful and cogent, because it's Popovich, monologue about voting rights and and the repression of blacks' rights to vote a century ago. He mentioned a Confederate officer, William Guthrie. Um, and then at the very end, after this long, rambling, wonderful monologue, said, Marco Bellinelli is out tonight. Um, so the, the NBA's bubble is working in that regard. You know, 
and also let's not, you know, hockey seems to be working. They just got started. The NHL soccer, the men and women both had great success or in, in the, the, the men's soccer, major league soccer is not done yet in terms of working inside the bubble. So the NBA, we're going to focus on because we love the NBA and it's the most watched sport, but these other sports that are doing bubbles are having success as well. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Let's be honest. It's been a few years since the Pac-12 conference had a real impact on the national college football conversation. Not anymore. On Sunday, more than 400 players in the Pac-12 published a list of 17 demands under the hashtag WeAreUnited. They range from simple requests, like health protections during the pandemic, to more ambitious ones, like 50% of the conference's football revenue to be distributed among the players. If those demands aren't met, the player said, they're prepared to set out a fall camp in any game scheduled for this fall or next spring. Today on the show, we have two members of the group, both from UCLA. Elisha Gidry, a rising sophomore defensive back from Long Beach, California, and Otito Obonia, a rising junior defensive tackle from Houston. Thanks for coming on with us this morning, Elisha and Otito. I guess the first question is, how did this group and the list of demands come together? Um, you know, it was something that, you know, we, we always knew, um, I think individually and, you know, just team wise, um, that this is a sentiment that most people felt, um, you know, we we were just waiting for an opportunity to get, to get this whole thing going. And this started with, you know, with some of our, some of the guys from Cal who, um, used this as an opportunity to, um, to demand, you know, change, you know, and, and, and try to try to really get something done here. And, um, by, I guess you could say by, by any means necessary. Um, and, and we kind of deemed this to be very necessary in this, in this moment of time, long overdue. And this is something that, you know, with the hard work of some of those guys who, who led this, who led this thing in the beginning and, uh, you know, kind of just relentless efforts. And as we've heard, we've heard people, you know, you know try to tell us that, you know, it's not going to work and, you know, things like this and kind of just keeping you know, our, you know, putting our heads down and, um, getting to work with this. And then, you know, just with Zoom calls, it was really Zoom that allowed us to do this whole thing and kind of being in a pandemic because, uh, you know, otherwise it'd be very hard to coordinate a movement, you know, this this big uh, in, in normal time. So um, in a way, I, I kind of think, you know, that the, you know, kind of thankful that we had a pandemic, you know, of course, you know, it's been destructive in, in, you know, in various ways, but it's also given us this opportunity to do this in the way we've done it. Yeah. Also, if I might add, I feel like just the, the social movement that, or the, the civil rights movement really that's going on in our country also inspired. I feel like there's a lot of inequalities that people are noticing, like people are being awakened to seeing some of the things that goes on in this world. And I feel like college football has many of them as well. Just kind of the the big pushback and kind of putting guys at risk with the COVID, you know, I feel like just not really addressing the elephant in the room with the, I mean, the season on the horizon, you know, I feel like guys kind of, I mean, guys have the thoughts, you know, guys, guys want to, I mean, we, the, the Cal guys reached out to people in the conference, kind of got their thoughts and that's kind of how the ball got rolling. So I feel like just, I feel like this movement kind of mirrors the civil rights movement in the country as well. Elisha, there are 17 demands on the list. Is 
Joel mentioned, um, what are kind of the top line ones as far as you're concerned? What are the ones that you want folks to really be aware of? For me personally, I feel like they're all important. I mean, definitely the the player safety with the COVID and ensuring that if a player decides to opt out, that his eligibility is honored and that um, he gets to come back next year safely and not lose his status on the team as well, as well as the different things with like the uh, getting insurance for players when they finish playing because football takes a toll on the body and the mind. And I feel like once the player is done, they're kind of, they're kind of just kicked out. They're kind of just thrown in the world without, I mean, not a lot of guidance. And they did put a lot of that, a lot into this football basket. So, you know, they're kind of, they kind of don't really have an idea of what to do. And they're kind of, they might have some bruises and they might be affected mentally. So just kind of having that as well as I feel like the name image, image and likeness is very important because players, players deserve to be able to create wealth for themselves. If with this sport, I feel like a lot of players come from uh, lower income homes. A lot of players have struggles that they have to deal with and football is kind of their way out, you know? So just kind of having an opportunity to be able to affect their families and affect their communities and people around them with their sport, even if they don't make it to the NFL is very important. Yeah, Otito, I was going to follow up on that by saying the demand that uh, that's gotten a lot of attention, of course, is asking for 50% of revenue from the conference to be directed toward players. I mean, realistically, there's no way that the Pac-12 leaders are going to agree to that um, immediately. So it does feel like by asking it, you're bringing this out into the open, the idea that athletes want um, are, are aware of the inequities here and that we've got to move toward some system that helps compensate them in some way. Is that how you view it or um, are the ambitions higher among the group? That's exactly how we view it. I think when you exploit a group of people for this amount of time, this is kind of what you get. They had their opportunity to fix this, multiple opportunities, and they've kind of denied even trying. And, and one thing we as a group aren't willing to accept is um, the idea that it's not possible. Uh, you know, this is this is a country who was brought up upon working hard and um, doing the impossible. And you know, there are ways to get it done, and there's a there's a number of plans that are being set in place. Another number of ways we can come uh, to the Pac-12, and I'm giving them ideas. But you know, the ultimate thing at the end of the day, you know, in regards to that 50% revenues, yeah, yeah, it's 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 it's, it's ambitious and it's high and it's asking a lot. But, you know, if you want to put us in the real world, which is the real world is what we are in. I don't think we're exempt from reality here. Um, we live in this country just like everybody else. And, and in regards to name, image and likeness, um, you know, it, it, why should we be the only citizens in this country who are denied making money off of who we are and our brand? And why is it that, um, a, you know, a, a kid at, at UCLA can, you know, you know, be on a musician team and go perform and make a couple hundred bucks off of their name, image and likeness? And maybe they might even be on scholarship. Um, but, you know, when it comes down to athletes, it's a whole different story. So, you know, that argument from that, you know, the whole principle of it you know, alone um, definitely, you know, kind of angers people because I don't see where the school loses money there. I don't see where the reallo reallocation of funds is there. So, you know, it's good that it's in, in, it's in progress, but it, it definitely brings up the question, why did it take so long? You know, why were they trying to deny this for, for ind individuals? For, for a very long time. And then, and I think that's where that social justice kind of comes in, right? When you deny a group of people certain, you know, rights, 
um, you start to wonder why you're doing it. And so that's kind of how we've paralleled this entire movement with the social justice movement. I want to ask you, and this is for either one of you guys, a little more than a month ago, before even the United We Stand movement, UCLA itself published its own list of demands. The football players published their own list of demands related to coronavirus protections, right? So there was obviously like an activist streak within the team already. And I just was curious to know, where is the team with that? Does that sort of been subsumed by this larger movement, the United We Stand movement? Or is the team still pursuing these listed demands related to that earlier ask about a month ago? Um, I, you know, I forgot to mention, you know, about when you asked about the start of this movement, you know, one thing those cow guys told us is that they saw our letter um, to our university. They saw what we published and, and that's and they kind of took that lead from us. Um, so, you know, that, that was cool to see that. And, and in regards to where, where we're at now, you know, for the most part, we're, you know, we're doing well um, in terms of guaranteeing COVID protections and doing everything our, our university in their power can do for us. And, and we're taking a very conservative approach um, to uh, getting back to play and co- competition, you know, if, if that's even feasible. But, you know, our biggest thing, you know, I, I think as a university and an apartment was making sure the players are safe. And they've echoed that throughout the, the department and throughout the system. I think uh, when people ask for further COVID things, uh, it, it's it's higher than it's up. It's it's much higher than UCLA. It has you know this is above UCLA. It's above any one conference or any one you know school. It's above any one person or any one coach or uh, AD. It's a conference thing, and the conference has the power to get some of these things done. As you as you've seen, um, you know the NCAA and the conference aren't necessarily as um, you know conjoined as you as one may think, and a lot of times they work um, you know separately in a lot of these a lot of these matters. Yeah, kind of going off what Otito said, just, I mean, I feel like the cow guys kind of saw the things that we were asking and they just stopped themselves like, okay, like we really don't, we don't necessarily have things like that. Like we don't have the same type of protection. That's kind of something we want because we feel like um, if we're taking this risk, coming back to school and trying to participate in this game, we kind of want to be protected as well. So I feel like just kind of seeing that and wanting to know, okay, like, is this, is this how things are going at Oregon State? Is this how things are going at Washington? Just kind of asking guys around kind of, kind of got, I guess that's kind of what got the ball going, you know, because I mean, at the end of the day, we all love football. We all spend so much time playing, you know, since we were kids and we want to do that as safe as possible, especially during this pandemic. So I feel like just, I mean, asking around kind of is what got everybody started and kind of got us all connected. And then we realized that there were more issues than just with the COVID-19 precautions. So that's kind of what brought us to forming the group. So I think it's important for folks listening to this to understand how kind of amazing and unusual it is what you guys are doing, even doing this interview. Like there was a story recently about the University of Iowa. They don't even let their players be on social media. I mean, the amount of control at these programs about what they allow you guys to say what they allow you guys to to represent and do in public, it's like so restrictive. And so the fact that you guys are talking to us about this, the fact that you put this message out, it's for college sports and for college football. This is an enormous deal. And we've already seen, like there are kind of varying reports about what's going on at Washington State in your conference about potential repercussions for players there, for joining this movement and for speaking out. And so are you guys at all concerned about um, potential repercussions from UCLA? And are you aware of the kind of power imbalance? I mean, your coach 
Chip Kelly was an NFL coach. He's a multi, multi-millionaire. Um, and you guys are, you know, you could have your scholarships taken away, potentially. Yeah, I, I think that's something that you know, a lot of people consider when, when they're joining this movement. I think you know, when you jo- try to join something um, with this magnitude, you kind of get the idea of what, what, you're, what you're getting yourself into and you kind of uh, make amends with that, um, uh, with, the, with the consequences of what you're, what you're doing. But I think ultimately, I'm at peace with myself any, anyway, any, regardless. You know, of course, I'd love to keep my scholarship and you know, you know, stay on the team, but that's not something that you know, our coach or our administration has ever echoed to us. They've never threatened us in that manner, and, and I don't think they will. You know, it's been relatively positive and, and we haven't seen any type of, you know, type of repercussion or retaliation from um, from anybody from our school. And, and it hurts to see um, that type of stuff being exemplified at Washington State because you tell people to stand up for what they believe in and in, in this world. And, you know, when you want to when you want to support something, I think you should have the freedom to do it. And, and in regards to, you know, speaking out and, um, you know, holding your tongue on a lot of these things, I think, you know, that's where. The conferences and the universities and the college football as a whole gains their control over individuals because you start to feel a certain way after you're done with football when you're when you're in the system and you feel silenced you feel like you can't say anything and that, and that takes a toll on you um, you know it definitely takes a toll on you mentally and it's taken a toll on me until I kind of had a realization of you know who I am and who I want to be uh, in this world and 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 that's not somebody who, who's silenced or um, who feels like they can't be who they are um, because of what I'm doing. You know, I don't think that's what we sign up for. It doesn't say that in our, um, you know, letter of intent or it doesn't say that anywhere. So it's not necessarily something that I think it's just a flaw of the system. And um, it's something that we're trying to correct. And, you know, you shouldn't bar anybody from, from you know, freedom of speech. They, they should be able to say what they want without feeling like they may get cut or, you know, that they may get blackballed by their team or their coach or whoever that, you know, that person may be. So, and that's why that Washington State situation is very um, significant in our eyes, you know, in this movement. And we're well aware of, um, you know, what's going on. And we're, we're trying to do the best we can to help those guys out there. Yeah, just following up on that, like, I feel like if for real change to come, you know, you kind of got to put yourself out there. And that's something that even I know, I know a lot of guys in the group and even myself kind of had to battle, like, what? what's the worst case scenario, you know? And that's kind of something that you think something always in the back of your mind. But for me, I came to peace that if, if I have to be sacrificed for, to, to, to have a greater movement come, then that's something I'm okay with. You know, if I can, if I got to sit out to help bring the change for my children or my friend's children that are to come or the next generation, you know, that's, that's something that, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to make things better. And if I, if I have to be the one that has to, has to be at, at expense for that, you know, that's something I'm okay with. So I feel like just, I mean, just in the terms of Washington State, you know, it's very sad because those players, you know, they were, they, they stood up for themselves. They stood up in what they believed in. They stood up for what they thought was right and what a lot of people thought was right. And they weren't even allowed to do that without repercussions. So it's, it's, it's something that's very sad. And I don't think is, should be acceptable in, in a lot of people's eyes. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, it's just, there's a lot, a lot to unpack with that, with that situation up there. But I feel like that those players kind of got treated wrong and it just reinforces the, the system of just having players just to play and kind of exploiting them for their talents and not really allowing them to be themselves, not really allowing them to have a voice, not, not allowing them to pursue the things that they want to pursue, you know, because 
the time constraints and they're kind of got the heavy eye on them and they want to please their coach so much, but it's just kind of in, it's kind of keeping that cycle going of, of exploitation, that something that we're trying to eliminate with speaking out and kind of using our voice. You know, we really want to empower the athlete, empower the college athlete to be able to use their voice, be able to uh, unify among sports, not just football, but amongst all the sports at the school. And I mean, really, really be and grow into the person that they want to be because that's what college is all about. Yeah, and, and going off of what, what he said, I think that's the ultimate goal that's not listed in those demands. And I don't think people necessarily get that sense is that, yeah, we're asking for all these things that are tangible that we, people could see on paper, you know, but at the end of the day, that's, that's, what, we're, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for, you know, a change in perception, a change in, in, change in views. Um, we understand that, you know, you know, people think of us a certain way because of what's been projected, um, but it doesn't have to be that way. We all know that, um, you know, change can happen. You know, it's just who's willing to do it and who's willing to work for that. You know, like I said earlier, I can't accept the idea that it's hard or it's too hard. I think everything's hard. You know, everybody has difficult you know, times, but, you know, you have to work to get, you know, to, to, to change, to change the world ultimately. And that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to, we're trying to change that perception and get, alleviate some of the, some of the pains and, you know, discomforts that a lot of these athletes go through. And yeah, we have it, we have a little bit better than most do, but it doesn't mean because you're in a situation that you asked to be in, it doesn't mean you can't, uh, you know, try to change um, the imperfections that are, that go along with that. You guys have very effectively identified and attacked the main uh, pressure point that universities have used for decades, which is that athletes are transient. They don't stay very long. It's difficult for them to get organized. And there's the power of the institutions and the NCAA bearing down on them. Um, I was impressed in the statement that, and what you just said about preserving all existing sports, it's not just about football and basketball. Um, And you mentioned that in the statement, and you also attack that the argument that you know that that these sports are more difficult to to sustain by saying that what you need to do is reduce spending on facilities and administrators and salaries. Otito, I want to ask you specifically. You're a, a a shot putter in addition to a football player with Olympic aspirations. You've experienced college sports from the perspective of an athlete in a big revenue sport and a non-revenue sport. How has that influenced your thinking in terms of how you want this movement to go forward? It was eye-opening. So, you know, when I first got here to UCLA, you know, I was fully immersed in football for the first part of the year. And I, and I went over the track side and, you know, the sentiments they feel towards revenue sports, it, it, it's, it's great. And I'm not trying to speak for everybody, but, you know, the notion that I got was that we were spoon-fed in a silver platter, you know, that, you know, we, we got everything that they didn't get. In fact, that we were taking away from what they also kind of, you know, in a sense, deserve to perform and train and, and you know, and compete at the highest level. And to, to an extent, you know, that was true, um, you know, and, and not, nothing's perfect, but, you know, at UCLA, you know, we're not, they're not, you know, they're not feeding, um, you know, the guys that track the same, the same amount of meals are feeding the guys that, you know, at, you know, the washermen, but at the end of the day, like those resources um, can be allocated in a better way. So, you know, for us, people like to say that we have, you know, these lavish facilities and, and things like that. And I agree, we do. Um, but I think our biggest thing is when we get to these universities, it looks nice, you know, when you're getting recruited and when you first arrive. But when you're there, um, you definitely understand that that stuff doesn't matter. Um, to win games, you're, you don't have to have the best locker room. To win games, 
You don't have to have the nicest uh, patio or, or the slide in your locker room. That's not that's not what's required to win football games. You see that echoed at the national in the National Football League. Some of those facilities are no comparison. Don't compare to what we have at the college, the collegiate level, um, in terms of facilities and 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 you know weights and all those things. Though they have identified that to be a good football player, you don't you need a you need a field and a facility. And is it perfect in the NFL? No. But I think they kind of echo a little bit better of the system in terms of how to use your resources wisely. I um, mean, and, you know, being a, you know, a dual sport athlete, you get to, you get to see why ways they can preserve revenue sports. They, they say that you can't compete if you don't upgrade your facilities, but that's the whole principle that's wrong in this whole system, right? Uh, we shouldn't be trying to invest in uh, the, the facilities. Why don't you invest in the people, right? You get on this, you say, well, how can Pac-12 compete if we don't invest in facilities? Well, it's never going to be equal. You know, if we keep spending money, do you think we're ever going to reach the amount of spending that the SEC does on the SEC does on in recruiting or in facilities? I don't think so. Um, you, you're not going to you're not going to put yourself in a hole um, just to make sure that you can keep up with recruiting. I think we could we could reverse or reimagine the thinking there and and try to reallocate these funds in a better way and, and, and do it in a way that doesn't require excessive spending. I'm just going to ask this. I mean, we're right here, early August. Football season is theoretically a few weeks away. Where do you think we'll be in October? Do you guys think you'll be playing football? It's it's up in the air. I don't think anybody can give you anything definitive at this point. There's a lot of unknowns, like everybody, like everybody's understood to be. It's just it's just one of those things where it's like you're hoping, you're hoping um, that we can play. We're also trying to do it in the safest way possible. You know, and, and, and the way L.A. County is, is moving right now, we don't see um, necessarily, like, you know, at least, you know, our, from our movement, um, we don't necessarily see how we could move forward to, to go from, you know, the 10-man pods that we're in right now to full-fledged competition. Uh, you know, there, there isn't enough testing yet. We, we still have, we still have, there's a lot of things we need to do to prepare for that. And we're not there yet. Um, you know, we can get there and, and it's possible, but there's also a chance it may not be possible. My mom is actually a physician, so people like them that study medicine and kind of know how things work. It's still a new virus, it's not COVID, but they know how they know how these things work. So we kind of got to hear heed their advice, and if they're if they're what however they're feeling about it, if they don't think it's safe, I feel like we can't we can't try to force it. You know, we kind of got to kind of got to go. We kind of got to go at it in the safest way possibly because I feel like if we try to force it, we might have an MLB situation where a whole team gets it and now that whole team's out. Now people are like, hmm, is this is this really worth it? I think Major League Baseball needs to listen to uh, Elisha because uh, when you screw things up really, really badly, then um, <laughs> a problem with, with COVID is uh, now known as an MLB situation. That's what, <laughs> that's what you don't want as an organization is to be associated with screwing up so badly that it becomes known as an MLB situation. <laughs> MLB needs to listen to you. College football needs to listen to you guys. Yeah. yeah. Elisha, Tito, we are so glad to have you on with us. What you guys are doing is tremendously courageous. Thank you all so much for your time. And I hope maybe we can circle back around and check in on you all uh, maybe later and, and, and see how, how things are working with the movement. Yeah, no problem. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right. On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we are going to talk more about college football. We'll talk about our reactions to the interview that we just did with um, the UCLA guys and just talk about what else is going on in the sport, which is being kind of upended as we speak with news about COVID and players speaking out in ways that they haven't before. So if you want to hear that, you've got to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. It's been weird to see Liberty University try to turn itself into a competitive D1 sports school, but in the last four years, the conservative Christian university founded by right-wing televangelist Jerry Falwell and run today by Jerry Falwell Jr. has spent $150 million on athletic facilities. It's won a bowl game and an NCAA men's basketball tournament game, and it's done so by recruiting athletes who might otherwise not be considered a good fit, black athletes, that is, on an overwhelming white campus led by a man, Falwell Jr., whose political and personal beliefs might fairly be characterized as, well, racist. As Joel reports in his fantastic long-form story that posted in Slate on Sunday, the social justice movement has helped clarify the place and views of black students on the Lynchburg, Virginia campus. A series of racist comments and behaviors, including by Falwell himself, has led at least four black athletes to transfer, exposing Liberty's efforts to go big time for what it is, an attempt to use sports not only to slurp up some of the billions in revenue sloshing through the system, but to cover up the underlying realities of what the school and its leadership ultimately represent. Joel, first, congrats on this fantastic piece of reporting and writing, man. Well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's start with one of the predicate incidents for the spate of transfers, which you describe in the lead of your piece. It involves one of the athletes who's transferring a football defensive back named Tavion Land. Tell us about Land and what happened to him. So, yeah, Tavion Land, uh, he is a rising sophomore, was the highest rated football recruit ever to sign with Liberty the year before. Uh, he's on campus in mid-June for a summer math class. And while he's in math class, um, the instructor uh, makes a joke to one of his teammates that, you know, don't be scared. I'm not going to pull out my whip and hit you. And this is related to a question he'd asked that player about whether or not he needed a tutor for class or not. And the player was like, ah, you know, he's like, I'm not going to, I'm not, don't be scared. I'm not going to pull out my whip and hit you, which obviously, you know, carries these really ugly racial connotations. Uh, slavery and all that good stuff. And it happens in this moment when Liberty is already sort of roiling after uh, President Jerry Falwell had sent out a tweet making fun of blackface. There had been all these other incidents that had been building up over the year. And so by the time this incident happens in class with Tavion Land, the football player, he had enough. He was just like, I'm done. I don't want to be here anymore. And four days later, Tavion puts his name in the transfer portal, announces that he's leaving, and all hell breaks loose. That's when everybody kind of gets to see that, oh, you know, uh, Liberty is losing its be- the best football recruit it's ever signed, and he's saying it's because of racial insensitivity and cultural insensitivity. And so that's kind of, you know, what made me want to look into it a little bit more, because that's not... that's. 
players always whisper about that when they leave a program or they go somewhere else and they'll say, well, I didn't like it there. This sort of thing happened to me. But for somebody to say it so explicitly and to say it so publicly at a school that is like very like pugnacious, you know, they're like they're like fighters. You know, Jerry Falwell tweets just like Trump. So for that kid to do that, that was a really courageous act. And that's what made me want to look into it a little more. So so we just talked about this movement in the Pac-12, the We Are United campaign, and the, the effort to kind of change the way that college sports are governed and the, the way that they operate. And I think the Liberty story is useful in the way that it lays bare. All the stuff that sort of underlies the relationships between athletes and the these schools that's like just barely below the surface. It's it's really above the surface <laughs> at Liberty. Um, they're trying to make themselves into a sports powerhouse in order to launder their reputation. It's all very kind of explicit and the athletes are very clearly being used um, by the school. And so um, I guess the question is, and, and you explain it in the story, but I think it'd be useful for you to explain it here. Just like, why would a black athlete or why would any athlete go to Liberty and sort of play their their part in this? Hmm. Including, you, you know, I think the easy answer would be because they believe what Liberty is selling. But I think some of these athletes didn't even believe in it when they signed on in the first place. Yeah, no. And I think, you know, in the story, we have two athletes that I spoke to about their experiences there, and they represent both sides of that coin, right? Asia Tide, the uh, women's basketball player who transferred um, even a few weeks before Tavion Land, for the same reason. And for Asia, the precipitating event was Jerry Falwell's tweet about uh, blackface. That was what caused her to leave. But she actually chose Liberty. Like, she had options. She could have gone to Butler Florida Gulf Coast, a few other schools. And, you know, she's from a very religious family. Her father is a pastor. The coaches, are, you know, really liked her and she really vibed with them. And she chose the school, right? Now, she didn't have a greater appreciation for the Falwell family and everything that Liberty sort of represents. But, you know, they lead with evangelical Christianity and she's a Christian. And she said, well, yeah, I, I could play basketball. I can you know, practice my religion here. And, you know, maybe there'll be people that are like-minded like me. So she went. But Tavion, uh, the the highest rated recruit in Liberty football history, he didn't want to be there. He didn't even know that Liberty really existed or what it was about until his offer got pulled from the University of Maryland. So Tavion gets his offer pulled from Maryland, which had fired DJ Durkin and hired Mike Loxley. And so the commitment or the verbal commitment that Tavion land, basically, it didn't go away, but he knew that he wasn't going to be welcomed into that recruiting class. So he had to find another school in basically a week and Liberty had some openings, right? And so, you know, of the schools that were available, Liberty plays in the FBS. They have great facilities. Fantastic. I mean, anybody that you talk to about their athletic program talks about, you know, there's nobody outside of the Power Five uh, conferences that has better facilities than Liberty. They've got all this money to burn, and they put it into facilities. So, and they'd started sending guys to the NFL. Yeah, well, a couple. Yeah, they, you know, they're doing better than they had been, right? And uh, yeah, they've got. They had a guy that just got drafted in the fourth round by the Washington NFL team this past spring. So, yeah, I mean, he looked at that and said, "Well, this might as I might as well go here. If I don't go here, where else is he going to go? He might end up at an FCS school." 
even further off the radar or someplace else. So um, Liberty was his best option, but that's not where he wanted to go. And so he ended up there. So that's that's why I thought it was instructive because you want, for at least for me, I wanted to have an athlete that chose Liberty because it was Liberty and an athlete like Tavion who ended up there because for lack of better options. The thing that most schools do when they try to change their image is to at least pay lip service to the broader culture. You know, Baylor is a is a religious institution and it has succeeded for decades in fitting in to big time sports. Liberty though, the underlying ethos of the place. I mean, you quote a, a a professor at a different university who studies religion saying that the school was born out of a culture that was systematically racist and they won't address that because they don't even believe in it. So Liberty is making no attempt to create a climate that will make these athletes, these black athletes feel safe. So Joel, isn't it, wasn't it inevitable? I mean, I'm not even sure that we needed George Floyd and BLM and nationwide protests to 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 have this facade crumble as quickly as it seems to be crumbling. I mean, you point out in the story that 10% of Liberty students were black as recently as 2007 and the number is down to 4%. And of that 4%, I'd like to know, you know, how many are athletes yeah. that have been brought in for the purpose of trying to change Liberty's image. So a lot of schools do the lip service to trying to engage in the culture and make that athletes feel welcome. And Liberty possibly could pull that off if Jerry Falwell Jr. wasn't the president of the university and he didn't sort of overshadow everything that the school does, right? Because they've got coach. I mean, Hugh Freeze coached in the SEC. You know, he's familiar. He's the head coach at Liberty, for people, the listeners that don't know. And, um, you know, he was previously at Ole Miss. So he's used to recruiting athletes like Tavion Land, better athletes than Tavion Land. Um, they can create a culture off campus and at the football facility that is appealing to athletes, but then it always comes back to Jerry Falwell and the sort of environment that he creates on campus, whether it's welcoming, you know, sort of uh, antagonistic conservatives like Charlie Kirk and Nigel Farage or, you know, Candace Owens. So even, like, I think the thing that really shocked me, and I don't, maybe this is just because I'm of a certain age or whatever, but like the idea that their school of government is named after Jesse Helms, really tells you something. You know what I mean? Like, I think if like they, they, you know, they kind, they're sort of leaning into this, you know, far-right republicanism that, you know, if you, you scratch a little bit beneath the surface, it's, I mean, for, for a black person like myself, like, you're like, oh man, that's really racist. That's like audaciously racist. But I think that if it was not Jerry Falwell there, like if somehow they had another president, that maybe some of that might turn a little bit. And you know, and I mean, our colleague Ruth Graham, who's written a lot about Liberty, talks a lot about sort of the internal battle there on campus, that Jerry Falwell is a source of dissension among supporters and alums that a lot of people want him gone. But, um, you know, he's in a position where most of the board of trustees are people that owe their positions to him. And it's up to them to make them to to make him do something or to make him leave. And they're not going to do that because they're Jerry's guys. So um, that's kind of the problem that Liberty has right now that like Jerry Falwell sits at the top of this this pyramid. He makes a lot of money for them. He brings a lot of attention to them, but a lot of it is bad. And, you know, like they they can be the school that he wants to be. But 
if they're going to be like that, it's going to be really difficult to build the sort of athletic program that they've always wanted to build. Yeah, and I think that's the the point to make um, because Stefan, like so many of our institutions, are built on racist foundations and are going to be able to weather this even if they don't change just because I think there's a sort of like comfort is, is the wrong word, but if like everyone is racist, then you don't really stand out. And it's like remarkable that liberty is so racist that it actually does stand out among all these institutions that have these these racist histories and, and lineages. And I think that they would have and could have successfully laundered that with just a different person at the top and somebody who makes more kind of conciliatory public statements. And, you know, if you compare it, it wants its peer institutions to be places like BYU and Notre Dame. And BYU has had decades worth, if if not more, of problems with trying to kind of assimilate the racist history and and beliefs of that church and institution with its desire to win basketball and football games. And there have been a bunch of really good stories written about the kind of path that Black athletes on that campus have to walk and the like really horrible time that a lot of athletes have had dealing with the honor code and all sorts of other mm-hmm. issues. I think Notre Dame has been more successful and maybe you mentioned Baylor. We all know what hmm. Baylor's kind of terrible history in the last few years. But, you know, Notre Dame has, to take one example, like a women's basketball coach in Muffet McGraw, who's like an outspoken feminist. And they've been able to recruit and attract an amazing run of players and one national championship. So you need to be able to or willing to make these kinds of compromises if you're a religious institution that wants to win. And, you know, Liberty won an NCAA tournament basketball game Mm -hmm. and it looked like it was working for them. And as you note in the piece, Joel, when they won that game, like the vast majority of coverage of it was like, what a fun Cinderella story. And, you know, what a, what a great, scrappy team. And it it was, if we needed any evidence, that was, you know, pretty clear evidence that if you win, then it actually is an incredibly effective marketing strategy. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you can, I think you said launder the reputation was, is a really good way of doing, of of saying it because, um, you know, winning can cure a lot of that. And I mean, you know, one thing to think about with Liberty is that it had that the basketball coach, Richie McKay, black head coach, um, you know, and they recruit in much the same way as the football team. They recruit, you know, they're going up against schools like Appalachian State and, you know, East Carolina for athletes. And they beat them out occasionally because they've got great facilities and good coaches. And if you can just hang out at the athletic facility long enough, you know, it could feel like home. Um, but once you step away from that, it's difficult. But, you know, and I was thinking about this is that Liberty isn't... <sighs> It's not so different to me than Ole Miss was to me in the 90s. Like, I used to look at Ole Miss and I'd be like, how could a black player ever go to Ole Miss? Because this isn't too long after they were flying Confederate flags in the stands. And it just seemed like a really hostile place to black athletes. But, you know, I didn't, you, the administration and people at, at Ole Miss have worked really hard to make it a place that it, you know is welcoming to black and other and other students of color there in the last 20 so odd years or so um, they have a, i think they have something like maybe 15% maybe 20% of their undergrad body is black 
And they've done all these other things to, you know, make it a place that's a little bit more welcoming, that sort of fights against that culture and the history of uh, white supremacy. Whereas, as we've mentioned, you know, liberty is just not willing to do that. And, you know, it's it's tough to say that I, I, I don't even think we'll ever get to a point where they're going to win so much that we'll be able to forget that. You know, um, they're, they're going to have kind of a cap on them. I mean, they're not in a conference right now in division, you know, for football at least. And just, just a lot of guys are just not going to want to do that. It's kind of like BYU. You mentioned BYU. Like, BYU is not going to get uh, Mikey Williams, you know, the top basketball player in the class of tw- 2023. You know, that guy's not going to be considering them because nobody wants to go through that. So th- there's going to be a cap on the amount of waves they're going to be able to make at that program. But Well, BYU did win a national title in the early 80s. In, 80, so in 84, the, that's cap, right. Yeah, I know. If, yeah. the, if the cap on Liberty is that they only win one national championship, I think they'd probably sign on for that right now. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying? But what, now, so we have to go back and quite, maybe that should have been our after, my after ball if I'd done one this week because I... I I know people always look at that 1984 BYU championship and they're just like, well, I don't know if they were the best team in the country. They just happened to be undefeated that year. But yes, uh, that's true. Yes. If they could win just one national championship, that uh, that probably would not qualify as a disappointment to Jerry Falwell share. I mean, Joel, do you think that what's happened in the last few months is a you know is a death sentence for Liberty's future as a potential successful D1 program? Or... Is it possible that even with Falwell in charge, it could look at other schools like BYU, like Clemson, you know, schools that have used religion as a way to attract top athletes? Obviously, the politics don't seem changeable with this guy or with (laughs) the institution generally. How does that word spread? And does it mean that we're going to see more athletes leave the school and fewer black athletes sign up. Maybe there'll be fewer Tavion Lands who are like, oh, I don't know much about it, but hey, their football building looks good. I'm going to go there. Right. Yeah. I, you know, that, that'll that be really interesting. I think that like certainly in the short run that they're going to have difficulty. You know, I talked with a few black alums uh, who didn't want to go on the record about how there are a lot of kids that just don't want to deal with liberty right now. Especially because people, you know, all these issues about racism and, and, you know, institutions committed to anti-racism and ending white supremacy, like that's at the top of the mind of the national conversation right now. So it is going to be really difficult for them to do what Jerry Falwell Jr. would like for them to do right now. But man, you know, memories are short. We just talked about this with the in the coronavirus segment that, you know, when I was growing up, Black athletes were wary of going to the University of Texas and Texas A&M. And, you know, they've got all those same, you know, Confederate monuments and cultures that are not necessarily conducive to welcoming Black athletes. But somehow administrations change, uh, memories get shorter, you know, um, you know, maybe we, we'll get more used to the idea of seeing Liberty on TV playing football. You know, I mean, other schools legitimize them by playing them. You know, they play Virginia Tech, they play Auburn. Schools like that. And so people will get used to it. And, you know, who's to say 15, 20 years from now that they're not in like the Sun Belt or something like that? And, or, you know, a, a low level Conference USA program. And maybe that they're competing at a really high level. Um, because I know all these things change. Like so many of the schools that, you know, the SC, the idea that the SEC is one of the nation's most powerful, is the nation's most powerful conference would have seemed not implausible to me in 1992, but I'm like, who the hell, what black athlete wants to spend time in Tuscaloosa or Oxford, Mississippi, or all these other places that seem inhospitable to black athletes, and it all changed. So anything is possible, but it's going to require Jerry Falwell to either make a 180 or for him to not be there. 
and that another generation of athletes sort of come up and just get used to the idea that Liberty is a, is a, is an athletic program that is open to them. It's a great story, Joel. Um, and we'll obviously link to it on our show page so everybody can read it. Yeah. Thanks for pimping it out, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's good to join you guys this morning. <laughs> <laughs> With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for Afterballs and... You know, one thing that came to mind for me, Joel, during that segment and when reading your story was, remember the scene in Hoop Dreams? It's the documentary about the two great high school basketball players in Chicago, William Gates and Arthur Agee. And Arthur ends up having to go to junior college. And he goes to this junior college. And this is from this is from memory, but I'm like 99.9% sure this is right. He goes to the school... And there's a place that's called like basketball house or athlete's house or something. And it's like all of the black people that go to this, this school. I don't know if that's literally true, but it's like essentially true that um, they all just live together in this, this one place. And it's called Mineral Area Junior College Ooh. that he went to in Missouri. And so, you know, just in a, and the way that your story kind of like lays bare a lot of what's under underneath college sports, that scene for me, when I watched this as like a, a teenager, really kind of exposed to me in, in a slightly different way, how colleges and college athletics exploits black athletes that, um, you know, if you're a guy like Arthur Ag, you go to this school, it's like a, a black basketball player. And you're like one of the only black people that goes to the school and all of the other black people, oh, yeah. you know, because they are on the basketball <laughs> team too. Right. And the name Miner- Mineral Area Junior College also just stuck with me. Where is it again? It's in Missouri. Mineral Area College. It's a public community college in Park Hills, Missouri. Oh, Arthur A.G., man. You went to it. And then you went to Jonesboro after that. He went to uh, Arkansas yeah, State. Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Stefan, what is your mineral area? Well, we had an excellent conversation on the show last week about Kraken, the name of the new NHL team in Seattle. I know Joel was fired up about Kraken. Kraken. But I have more thoughts Slate's Decodering podcast, the New York Times, Code Switch on NPR, they all have done pieces about the emergence of Karen to describe white women screaming about having to wear a mask in Starbucks or calling the cops on the black guy shopping or birding or biking or walking. The Times piece, though, by Henry Goldblatt quotes a linguist saying that one reason that Karen appears to be sticking is the way that it sounds. It has a voiceless plosive, the harsh K that emerges with a puff of air from the back of your mouth like you're spitting out the word. So it fits. Karen. That got me thinking about the Kraken. The plosive K in Kraken is mitigated a little by the R that follows. You don't get the same aspiration, the same boom, Kraken, Karen. But it's still a hard sound, and there's the second K in Kraken, which helps salvage some of the lost plosiveness. 
In this case, the Ks don't convey disgust like in Karen, but toughness, which might explain why the team's marketing campaign is all about the Kraken rising ominously from the murky depths to devour all that crosses its path. You can't spell Kraken without Karen. Thanks to Ben Zimmer for the phonemics lesson. Slate associate editor Seth Maxson, meanwhile, slacked me about one of the losing candidates, Sockeyes, which I had endorsed as my top pick. You can't spell hockey without Sockeyes and an H. Seth noted that the defending USA Ultimate Frisbee champs is the Seattle Sockeye, singular, who defeated the Chicago Machine in the 2019 finals, and he wondered whether there might have been a trademark issue preventing the use of the name by the NHL team. I doubt it. But there already was a Seattle Sockeyes plural team, a fictional professional hockey team in a series of romance novels by a Washington State woman who writes under the pen name Jamie Davenport. She's written 14 Seattle Sockeyes books, including Crashing the Net and Body Checking. The covers all feature beefy white dudes fondling a babe shirtlessly toweling off or holding a hockey stick with the space needle rising preapically in the background. In the intro to the first book, Skating on Thin Ice, which was published in 2014, Davenport explained that she was crossing all my toes and fingers that Seattle will get a professional hockey team in the near future. So she decided to create that very scenario in my fictional world with the Seattle Sockeyes. The promo copy lays out the plot of the first book. He trusts his gut, she trusts her numbers, and neither trusts the other, as a billionaire's mission to bring hockey to Seattle clashes with his passion for the woman who holds his heart. Davenport created a logo for her Sockeyes and started selling Sockeyes mugs, t-shirts, and hoodies on her website. She told me over the weekend that she had planned to apply for a trademark for the name, and then in late 2017, the NHL announced that it was awarding a franchise to Seattle, so she sped up the process. Davenport got some coverage then, and again in February, when Kraken leaked as the likely name. She got some hate mail on the assumption that she was blocking the use of Sockeyes, which she said she wasn't. She just wanted to protect her business, she said. She even wrote to the NHL team saying she'd work with them on the name when no one wrote back. She figured Kraken was the winner. Davenport told me she thinks Sockeyes was the better name. Kraken seems more Hollywood than truly representative of the Pacific Northwest, she said. And she correctly noted, as we did last week, that Kraken is going to invite all kinds of rude remarks and nicknames. But... She told me she's actually relieved that Sockeyes lost. If the NHL team had gone with Sockeyes, all I saw were headaches and expenses for me. Davenport has also written football and baseball romance novels about the Seattle Steelheads, Lumberjacks, and Skookums. That's an A-plus name. A skookum is a Chinook word for, among other things, a Bigfoot-like monster. But she said hockey romance is the best-selling sports romance. And on Sunday, she put the finishing touches on book 15 of her Sockeyes series. It's called Playmaker. It's got a tatted-up bad boy on the cover and the Space Needle. You can pre-order now. Book 16, Icing, is due out in November. Davenport and her husband, by the way, have applied for season tickets for the Kraken. That book is not about Michael Irvin, then. Playmaker? (laughs) I don't think he even makes an appearance. Oh, man. That's unfortunate. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. 
For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>